Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. My name is not Alabama. I couldn't even imagine if it was. My name is Brent, and I'm the teaching pastor here. Uh, but uh, if you're a first-time guest, thanks so much for taking time out of a busy weekend. I know it's summertime here in the Tri-Cities, and this is what we all live here for everybody, right? I mean, summertime. Um, and uh, so thanks for taking time out of a busy weekend, spending it here with us. We're starting off a brand new series today called Trust Issues, three-part series. Um, it's going to be about money and uh, money and the church, but just money kind of in general and Jesus' take on, on money. Um, it's interesting because uh, this week I had a chance to film a video for uh, a friend named Jeremiah who pastors a church in St. Michael. He's one of our external elders, and every summer we kind of exchange videos back and forth. So I'll film one for him, he'll film one for me. We show it on Boat Race Weekend or whatever, because um, I don't want to talk on Boat Race Weekend. Anyways, um, uh, so this week he had this idea. He's like, what if, what if um, you talked about an area that you feel like you've got some expertise in that maybe I'm not as good at, and then I'll do the same for you? And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. Do you have anything in mind? He's like, no, just like think of, you know me, like come up with something that would be really, really good. And, uh, and then we'll go in that direction. So I have no idea what he picked for me. Uh, but I did um, the spirituality of, spiritual, uh, of a, a personal hygiene um, over for him. So I filmed that video this week. So that's going to be really awesome. I can't wait for them to be able to watch that. Um, and I had a chance. They uh, have been a church for a little bit longer than us. They're bigger than us, all that kind of stuff. They've been in a school for like 11 years, the same school. Um, they uh, went and like bought land and then found out there's some environmental issues and so they couldn't do what they wanted to do on it. So that kind of fell through. They had to sell it for less than they bought it for. Uh, they had like something lined up and like this movie theater that had kind of closed down. And then last minute, the guy decided he was going to do something different, go in a different direction. So they've had their hopes like there and then gone multiple, multiple times. It's been a roller coaster ride, and I've been uh, from a distance watching it and, and taking the phone calls and, and all the kind of stuff and hearing the stories. Um, and then this last week, they finally closed on their, they did the construction from the ground up and got keys into their building and held their first ever church service at Westbridge Church in St. Michael, Minnesota. So if you're ever going through St. Michael, I have no idea why you would ever do that. But anyways, if you're ever there, Westbridge Church, you can check it out. They moved in their new building. And uh, so this, uh, the, the film, the video thing is going to show in the next couple of weeks. And so in the video, I said something about, man, congratulations on your new space, looking around. This is uh, just awesome. And hearing the stories of all this stuff and, and knowing the roller coaster ride you guys have been on and the fact that you probably had to make some big financial decisions. Are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? And, you know, we don't have, you know, anytime you've built a house, you go into it thinking this is what it's going to look like. And then when the numbers come back, you're like, well, we don't have to have rooms. We could just do like, I don't know, something different, right? Who needs three bathrooms, right? So we'll, we'll cut it down to whatever. And you make decisions based on like financial decisions. And so in the video, I said, I just want to commend you, Westridge Church, for in spite of all the different cuts that you could have made, that you left the private bowling alley in Pastor Jeremiah's office. I think that that's really, really cool. And that's going to be super beneficial for him later on, you know, keeping him there and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm sure it got the same kind of reaction uh, that you guys just gave, like, ah, ha, ha, except for it's kind of like a little close to home because the church has like been so kind of shady on some, some money issues in the past. We have some trust issues with that, right? There's some trust issues when we've tried to do our best to be completely transparent. If you go to our state of the church, we have these booklets come out and here, here's where we spend money, here's how we do and all that kind of stuff. But we know that's a really sensitive issue, especially for some of you who not really a part of a church. Maybe this is, again, your first time or first church that you've ever been, not your first time to Eastlake, but like your first church that you've ever been a part of. And it's always been like, uh, all right, you guys do this whole giving on thing, but what, what goes uh, beyond that? And so uh, we, I get it. And, and here's, what I, here's what I know too. It's not just, I don't just have trust issues with money in the church. I have trust issues with money just in general. 
Like when I take my daughter to the store and she's like, hey, can I go, you know, can I go buy this and do this thing? And I give her like 10 bucks to go buy some piece of candy or something like that. And she comes back with the change and gives me the change. Like I count it out. I don't know about you, but I like count it out and be like, I don't think that candy bar costs that much. I think she might've pocketed something, right? And it's so I'm like, did you give me, how much is that candy bar? I'll ask her and there's like, I trust her to watch my one and a half year old at home. And I don't trust her with $10 at the store. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is that about? Why does, when money gets introduced into the situation, it becomes far more complex when it comes to trust issues? I can trust you with so many things. Here, borrow my car. Here, do this, do this, do this. And as soon as it's like physical, tangible money, all of a sudden, I'm like real conservative. All of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know. I got to make sure. I think he's up to something. I think they're up to something. I think it's all about they're, 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 they've got an angle. They're working an angle at some point. When, whenever money's involved, things get different. And Jesus knew this. Jesus talked about money oftentimes. Like, so if you look at the Gospels, there's about 35 to 38 different parables uh, and teachings, right? So he would, he would sit people and go, okay, once upon a time, there's some, you know, something happening. He's trying, to, he's trying to communicate a truth or a life principle. Of those 35 to 38, because there's a couple of them that are like questionable, you could take it either way. 16 of them are about money. There's more about money than there is about heaven and hell. You've heard that kind of growing up too if you've grown up in the church. Jesus speaks more about money than heaven or hell combined, right? Um, it, it takes place, it's constant. And here's the interesting about it. Even though Jesus talked about money all the time, he never once asked people for it. He never followed it up with, therefore, here's an offering plate. Everybody, you know, put in what you feel comfortable doing, right? He never, it, there, with one exception, at one time, he was out with some people, and somebody asked him a question about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he asked the question of, does anybody have a coin I can borrow? And somebody flips him a coin, and he says something about, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And then by all accounts, he probably gave it back to that person, right? I mean, it doesn't say that, but it also doesn't say, Jesus was a thief, and then he pocketed it. He's like one of those street performers that asks, does anybody have a $20 bill? And then they cut it up. It's your $20 bill. And they like cut it up. And you're like, everybody's like, yeah. And all you can think of is, am I getting that back? What's happening here? Um, you're not even like impressed with the trick. And they're like, let's just give it back to me as quickly as possible, right? That's what's going on here. And Jesus, by all accounts, again, gives it back to them. It's the only time he ever asks for money, he gives it back to them. He's not, he's not using this as a manipulation tool, but he has lots of things to say about money. And so, Jesus was definitely up to something, and he was after something, but as it turns out, I'm convinced, and I think you should be convinced too, it wasn't about other people's money. Now, I want to play a little game with you real quickly. I want to ask you the question, if your money could talk, what do you think it would say? Would you want to hear what it has to say, or would you be like, I know, I know, I know, I know, right? Because our money, if it could talk, I would imagine that there would be some things that it would say to be like, don't do this, don't, don't, don't spend me on this. And you'd be like, shh. Like, and it would be like, you're not going to use this. Why would you buy this? It's gonna, you're going to unbox it. You're going to put it in your living room. You're going to stare at it. You're going to hang clothes on it. Then it's going to go in the basement, and you're going to sell me at a yard. You're going to sell it at a yard sale. And you're exchanging me for that. And you're like, I'm trying to work out. Like, be nice here, right? And we, we have all kinds of things that we've spent our money in dumb ways. We, we are so glad our money doesn't, doesn't say anything specific to us. But what if it did? What would it say to us? And one of the things I think money would say, and I think it matches up to what Jesus has to say about money, because if money could talk, it'd be interesting, but it can't. Jesus had lots of things to say about money. I think they say the same thing. I think, I think his overarching message amongst like a common thread throughout all 16 parables, we're going to look at one of them in particular, but a common thread throughout all 16 would be this. That money is a great means to an end, but it's a terrible end in and of itself. 
Money can add meaning to your life, but it is not the meaning of life. It is a vehicle towards an end, but it's a terrible end in and of itself. And we know it doesn't get much play at funerals. Everybody talks about how nobody's going to talk about how much you made. They're going to talk about who you were and what you did and the memories that we shared together. We totally understand that. But if you want to live, this is my kind of takeaway. This is the thesis for this entire series, and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this. If it's unclear, we'll continue it in, in the next two weeks. But if you want to live a meaningful life, you have to figure out a way to be a means to an end that goes beyond just you. See, the problem with money is that you can use it as a means to an end for myself, it's also known as hoarding, or it's also known as a solid retirement. There's a, it, it has an ability to create a sense of security that we can point to it and say, that's how I know I'm safe. That's how I know I'm good. This is how I know I'm a worthy worker based on the paycheck that I get, based on the thing that I get. It can say so much. It can become this idol, and we refuse to see it as a tool. Tools are things that help us to get an end accomplished. The reason you buy a hammer is so that you can do a project that requires a hammer. You don't just get a hammer to be like, I've always just wanted to own a hammer. I just really wanted a really nice hammer, and you never use it, that's a terrible, it's a, it's a means to an end for something. It's a tool that is used so you can get something that you want in return, right? So anyways, uh, there's a story that's going to illustrate this, I think, a little bit easier for us to kind of gra- grab our minds around this idea of using money as a tool and not a means to an end, as a means to an end, but not an end in and of itself. Uh, Luke chapter 16, uh, it's one of Jesus' uh, parables that is um, probably a little bit, di- like it's, it's, uh, there are some parables that like, once you read them, you, it's really easy to make sense of what he was trying to uh, communicate. Um, this one is known as the parable of the shrewd manager. If you have like little titles above the paragraphs in your Bible that it'll, it'll say something like that, or the careful steward or, or the dishonest steward. Um, uh, it's a story you may be familiar with. It has an interesting twist at the end that I, I, I think that people don't see coming. But um, it's a parable about money and possessions. And Luke wrote it down first. If you remember who Luke was, Luke was a doctor. Um, so he probably had lots of good resources. He was probably a fairly wealthy individual. He was not one of the 12 disciples, but was part of the lowercase disciples, basically meaning a crowd of people who followed Jesus early on. Um, and he decided to use his knowledge, his intellect, and his talents, and, and it would be costly to write things down. Uh, writing instruments and the education to be able to learn that was all expensive. Um, and so uh, he decided to, I've been kind of given unique talents. I need to leverage them for the sake of uh, other people. So I'm going to write down the, the teachings and the persons of Jesus as I kind of saw them, but then also what I heard from all of his disciples because I'm pretty close friends with all of them. He captured all of these things down, writes it in a letter to a friend called Theophilus and says, I wanted to write an orderly account. And the early church had copies of that letter and meticulously copied those things down and kept them because they found, they said there's value, significant value here. They included it in the New Testament canon. So it's not enough to say, well, the Bible says this. No, what we're reading is a guy's specific account of what I remember Jesus talking and teaching about uh, and or I heard him talking and teaching about. So Luke chapter 16, we get a parable about money and possessions. Here's what it says. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, one of the things you need to know about Luke, Luke was written to an outsider audience. Um, last week, uh, Dr. Charette was here. He spoke a lot about Matthew. His focus is on Matthew on the podcast. We talked about how uh, Matthew was written to an internal audience, a lot of times trying to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah who was destined to come. Uh, in Luke, he's writing to a more non-Jewish audience, a Gentile audience or a Greek audience, trying to convince them that the Logos, all of these things that Plato and Socrates talked about, about this divine being that's in the sky, made himself known through the person of Jesus. So a, a different approach in that way. Um, and uh, in his approach, when, when, when we read this, he oftentimes talks about 
uh, he'll, he'll say the word rich in a way that has a negative connotation towards it. So from an outsider's perspective, he's trying to say uh, the rich in the same way that if somebody said um, there was a person of the 1%, using kind of modern day language of like, we, we had the democratic debates this week or whatever, right? And the 1% and the 99, whatever, they, that gets a lot of play. We understand that when people say, oh, he or she is part of the 1%, that is intended to be a derogatory sort of statement, right? So that's what's going on here. There was a rich man, so not, not, not this is not pro, whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. He had so much stuff, he had to hire a manager to handle all of his possessions, and he found out through the grapevine something was going on. It's a little bit shady. There were some dealings on the table. He's probably pocketing some for himself, and he's going to be called to account for it. So he called him in, and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give us or give me an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. In other words, I am firing you. You are now fired. However, I need you to do something for me before you go I have been so distant from the books, I'm going to need you to, as your last kind of act of an employee of me, gather together what it is that you've done and then present it to me so that I know where to go from here or so that I have something to hand to the next person that I hire and, and be able to be like, here's where we're at, here's where we need to go. All right. Uh, the manager said to himself, and the same thing that you've said to yourself if you've ever been fired or called in for a, you know, a PIP or a, a probationary period, what shall I do now? What am I going to do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. In other words, I've, I've kind of figured out these categories for me. I don't want to do that. I can't physically do that. I'm, I'm in a tough position. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. I know what I'm going to do. He hatches this plan. We get this like insight, live picture into his brain as it works. I'm going, to be, I'm going to do something that is going to ensure that when I don't have a job here, I'm not out of options later. And this idea of welcoming into their houses basically doesn't mean like I'll have a place to eat that night. It means I still have community outside of this. Therefore, finding a job beyond this is within the realm of possibility as opposed to I'm fired and I've got the shame of being fired. All right. So he called in. Here's his plan. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first how much do you owe my master? In other words, there seems to be a lot of people who owe this man money. Uh, he brings one of them in and says, how much do you owe my master? Not, uh, verse six is this, 900 gallons of olive oil. That feels like a lot to me. Uh, I, I don't know. I have, I have like a pint at home and we've had it for like six months. So I don't know what you would do with 900 gallons of olive oil. Um, he replied, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450, basically cut your bill in half. And sit down quickly and make it this, basically means if you're willing to write me a check today, I'll accept half of the payment. Now, apparently he had the authority to do something like this. And there's a couple of factors that are playing into this. It could be that there was like interest that had gone on because there were some late payments going on. Uh, and all of a sudden he was like, oh, let's wipe out the late payments. And if you just take care of it today, we'll, we'll waive the fees, or, which is possible, which would be generous of him, but not like super generous. Um, or it could be he had some sort of a commission involved in this as a manager and knowing he's about to lose his position, trying to buy favor with these people, I'll wipe out my commission. But 50% of the commission, that feels like a lot. Who knows? Um, the odds are for me, I think he probably shorted his manager some money and said, at least I got you something. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in debt consolidation or if you've ever been in that kind of process. Maybe you've received phone calls or maybe you've been a landlord and you've been renting to somebody who's like, I don't have any money. And you're like, well, if you just give me X amount of dollars, I'll look the other way and we'll just, you leave and whatever, right? There's, we, we understand kind of the situation of how this thing plays out. But he's, at some point, we know what he's trying to do is curry the favor of the people who are in debt to his master using money as a tool 
to curry that favor, all right? He could have pocketed the money for himself. He could have saved, you know what? I need to save this money for myself because who knows how long I'll be out of a job. But that doesn't appear to be what he does. Instead, he sees money as a tool. Not his money, I know, I understand that. But he sees money as a tool to get something done that he wants done. And by saying, all right, instead of 900, how does 450 sound? Then it feels like it's almost as if the other guy is like, man, that was super generous of you. Thank you. If there's ever anything that I could do for you, would you please just let me know? Then he asked the second one, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. That feels like a lot too. He replied, uh, he told him, take your bill and make it 800. So not 50% this time. So it could be, you know, he's just, maybe he's just pulling out numbers randomly. Maybe he knows what they can afford to do at this point. How much do you have on you? Well, that sounds about right. Make it 800 and we'll be good. Again, hey man, if you ever need anything, would you call me? Like, man, that's super generous of you. Call me. All right, the master, the master. Now, this is where the master is reintroduced into the scene. He has now submitted the books back to him. He's heard about what's been going on probably. Something has happened. He, we're gonna find out he is now fully aware of what this manager has been doing with his funds, by the way, to curry favor for himself at the expense of the master. Now, at this point, I would love to put myself in a position of once again reading this story for the first time as if I didn't know the ending. The problem is I've been a pastor for too long and I grew up in church and and I've heard this story since I was like 12 years old, right? Uh, So I know how this thing ends. I I forget the twist. I forget the, I, I wish for those of you who are hearing this maybe for the first time, I wish I was in your seat in the same way that you wish you could rewatch Sixth Sense and not know the ending, right? Don't you, don't you? You're like, I wish... At one point, I could just be like, what is, I don't, I'm going this blindfolded, right? Or, or you find out somebody hasn't watched that. Or, or um, there's another one called The Game by Mike, with Michael Douglas in it. It's like a little bit older than that, but same sort of thing. And if you haven't watched that, I just made your weekend for you guys. Enjoy. Um, and you'll know that there's a twist coming, but that's all you'll know. And you're like, I wish I could watch that again, not knowing, because like you just go, you go into the story that much more. All right. With that in mind, what do you imagine and you can't because you'd probably know the end, but can you imagine the response of the master knowing that this man has been dishonest with your money to set himself up for success later? The master found out about it and threw him in jail. We would understand. The master found out about it and demanded recourse and said, I'll sue you for all of that money that you just wrote off. You did not have the authority to do that. But instead, verse 8, Again, this is, this is a parable. This is a once upon a time like fairy tale that has a point. Jesus knows this. He's not talking about, you guys know rich, rich guy Bill, right? 1% Bill, that's what we call him. He's not like, this guy doesn't exist. I'm, I'm creating a story. And as they're leaning in this moment, he says this. The master commended, like slapped him on the back and said, good job, buddy. Nice work. Commended the dishonest manager. He's fully aware of the dishonesty and the lack of integrity in this process And he congratulates him on it because he had acted shrewdly, almost as if he's like, I see something in you that is a lot like me. And the reason I got to this spot as a business owner who can afford to give you 900 gallons of olive oil or, you know, bail that out or whatever, I see a little bit of me in you. You got me this time. You won't get me again, but you did get me this time. It's, it's, it's one of those movies where the veteran gets bested by the rookie. And all of a sudden, like, there's this moment of like, solidarity. And you're like, okay, we're good. He screwed him, but like, he respects that. There's like a, a, a respect in that way. That's what's going on in this. 
And here's the takeaway that Jesus says. He pulls out of the parable at this point, and here he's going to illustrate kind of what the, the, the idea, the, the, thing, the thing that drives this thought. For the people of this world, he's about to contrast the people of this world with what he's going to call the people of the light. Light being um, uh, his kind of, Luke's kind of coy way of those who have been called, or Jesus' kind of coy way of, of those who have been called into something different, uh, those who have been given the promise of God, those who are, are, are um, of the elect or of the uh, aware of, of God. There's like that kind of language. Those who know, those who know better versus the people of this world who live as if this world is all there is to this world, who the most important documents are birth certificate, death certificate. Like that's all there is. All there is is what you have in, in this life. And so you go through life maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. How do I live that out? If I don't think that anything else matters other than like the few short years that I have as human beings, then I'm gonna take advantage of this limited time, this limited opportunity, and I'm gonna live it up in the best way that I can. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The money manager was commended for taking full advantage of his limited time and his limited opportunity. He wasn't commanded, uh, commended because of his dishonesty. The, manager, the, the boss looks at this manager and says, you had limited time, you had limited opportunity, and instead of hoarding it and making it all about you, you took an approach to money as a tool to get something done. To manipulate other people, good for you. Good for you. Jesus is trying to commend somebody, not for their spirituality, not for using money correctly or, 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 or giving it away or look at his generosity towards the church or whatever like that. He's trying to say, this is a person who did not allow money to become an end and of itself. He saw money as a tool. And I know he used it for ill-gotten means or whatever in, in the way that he got it, but good for him for seeing that money it's not an end and of itself, but a tool to get the things that you want in life. Why is it, Jesus would say, that there are people in this life who all of it is is this life, who are better at this than people who know more? And he's going to explain why this is so important. I tell you, verse 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, and it will be gone, right? We all know there's no U-Hauls parked behind a hearse, right? We all know that when you die, there's nothing there. If you don't take it with you and you're gone, it's not yours. You're simply a manager of it so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, the theology behind this next part, or this interpretation, if you just read this at face value, it appears as if Jesus is saying how you spend what you have now has internal implications. The temporary way that you spend your temporary money has eternal implications on it, which sounds ridiculous. It sounds out there. It sounds like, I don't know if I can agree with that. Um, especially if you're not religious, but even if you are religious, you're like, oh, that's so hard for me to kind of get that. And I understand, and you shouldn't because it's a far out idea, except for the fact that this is the only person that we know of who died and rose again and did the whole resurrection thing. Therefore, probably if you believe that that to be true, and if, if you're a Christian, then that is what you believe to be true. He has far more authority than you and I would have about, I just don't think that that works that way. And he'd be like, well, I'm telling you that it does. And I know more than you because I've been there and I've done that sort of thing. So he's saying, he's saying this, listen, you who supposedly believe in eternity, you believe in something that is life beyond this life, and yet you handle money as, a me, as an end in and of itself. You get as much as you can of it. It becomes part of your identity. You point to it and you feel safer with more zeros in your bank account 
than with less zeros in your bank account. And it, and it drives, it's a major factor in all of your life decisions. You've said no to jobs that would be better for your family and for your personal life and for your health because the money wasn't there to be able to make it work. It wasn't a big enough jump for you to go to. And the biggest factor was not location. It wasn't time. It was money. Or you said yes to a job that you knew would slowly kill you, but you'd never seen that kind of money on a W-2 statement before. And so you said yes to it. And yet you live, yet you come to church and you clap your hands and you do your things and you sing your songs and you, and you, you talk about scripture and you talk about life beyond this life and you talk about how well, there's, there's more to this and it's not just chasing after you know, passion and pleasure for today without any, any thoughts for tomorrow. And yet in your actions kind of betray you in that way. And then there are people who have so much money, they understand that money is a tool to be generous, to curry the favor of others. And Jesus says, it's actually more like that than the way that you're currently doing it. Money is to be a tool. Now, not a tool in and of itself, or not, not to, that ends with you, not that, but, but it, it, I, I, you start with that pathway. You start with seeing it as a tool. And it's not to grow your own personal benefit. It's to go beyond yourself but it starts with seeing it as a tool, and our natural tendency is to not see it as a tool, but as something significant for, our, for our, that defines us. Money, according to Jesus, is a means. It's a means. And the question we should be asking is, how can I leverage more of what I have as a means to an end that's not me? And then it transitions to this, and this is, this is a practical example it played out in people's lives, especially in the summertime. Um, I have people who struggle with the idea of uh, investing in family on vacations in the summertime or whatever um, uh, because any time that they're gone doing these things, all their mind can think about is how much money we're spending on here and I'm not really fully engaged in the vacation because if I could have just saved that and then 12% returns over the you know course of the 12 years, it turns into, ugh, this vacation's costing me a million dollars. And you're like, it's not costing you a million dollars. Yeah, but if I had put it in there and I could think about it. And meanwhile, their kids are like, Disneyland, Disneyland, funnel cakes, right? And you're like, funnel cakes, $12 for bad? I just don't even, I just don't know how I can get there, right? Listen, uh, it's either stuff or stories. It's always been either stuff or stories. And Jesus is saying, even people who don't have a great positive outlook on like, what is life beyond this life? understand some of that stuff better than you. They're about creating these stories, these memories, these something. Now, this isn't go live recklessly, and your pastor said, I could spend whatever I want and don't worry about it. No, I understand. Like You need to you know, handle yourself properly and, and pay your mortgage and do all the things and, and uh, be a good debtor and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, I, but, but with a healthy understanding of every time I get a chance to choose stuff versus stories, um, stuff is going to define. I've, I've made my myself uh, be aware of uh, money as an idol and as something that is not a tool towards an end, but an end in and of itself. He goes on, verse 10 says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be tr- dishonest with much. So if we have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, money is not only a means but at this point, he's also saying transition and goes, it's actually part of a test. 
the way that we handle this, if we're, if, if those, for those of you who call yourself Christian, if you're not a Christian, then this is just like practical advice you can take or leave, right? Stuff versus stories, you can kind of take that and be like, I, I can see the value of that. But Jesus says, it's not an option for people who are not. This is, for those who are following me, Jesus, he would say, this is, you need to get a good grasp on this. Because not only is it a means, it's a test for you. You are being tested in this way that, there, that God is at some degree going, I can bless you or not bless you based on this way. Um, and why would I bless you if, with lots of things if you're not good with little things? And then he contrasts it. And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? Reinforcing this idea, listen, in life, we are simply managers, we are not owners. If you leave it behind when you die, then you were, all you were was a manager of it while you were here. It, with our limited time and with our limited opportunities. And I don't know how much time you have left and I don't know how much money is your bank account. It doesn't matter. With that in mind, how then do we view money? How then do we leverage this? If being a means, it's a question I would, I would love us to think about for the next couple of weeks as we kind of continue on with this series. If being a means to an end is what gives your life meaning, and I think that it is, if being a means to an end is what gives your life meaning, to what ends do you want your life to be a means? To what ends, what's the end goal that you want your life to be a means? Accumulation, consumption, upgrades, fashion forwardness, house full of stuff, these are all possible potential ends. In the American consumer culture, the default is going to be into one of these things. You, don't, you would never choose these things. You don't like tell your kids, listen, kids, the reason that we save is because we want to be able to upgrade everything we have. Uh, we love to be fashion forward, and, and we, we pride ourselves in a house full of stuff. No, no, no. We make funny fun of shows of people who have houses full of stuff. That's what we do. We, never, we wouldn't want that, but then Jesus would say, yeah, but look at how you're living your life and how you're handling money. Is that the direction that you're going? Nobody wants it to look like this, but live for yourself and you only have yourself to show for yourself along with some stuff for people to fight over when you're gone. So if being a means to an end is what gives your life meaning, to what ends do you want your life to be a means? Are we willing to take a long, hard look at how we have handled the money thing in our life? And are we willing to listen to what Jesus has to say about this. Luke chapter 16, verse 14, he concludes this story. He goes on one final verse, and we'll leave it at this. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus, who loved money. The Pharisees, the spiritual people, the pastors and priests of that day, who loved, they loved money, heard all of this and had no choice but to sneer at Jesus. To say that's a ridiculous fantasy of your perception of money, to be generous beyond yourself, to use it as a means for something as opposed to just getting it all for yourself. Listen, this is not something that is like a one-time thing for us. This has been a part of our culture as a church, and we want to do this individually. I mean, I'm preaching this, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that you take this and be like, okay, what do I got to do personally? I want you to know that as you as you integrate this into your personal life, we are trying to do this as corporately as a church as well. That's why on the back of your program, under the giving next step piece, here's what, I'm just gonna read it for you. Everything we do at Eastlake is made possible because of the generosity of those called Eastlake Home. The goal isn't a flashy building, obviously, with baristas and bowling alleys. 
but a group of people with a healthy perspective on the role of money as a tool, not an idol in their life. What if we got it right? Because the reason we have trust issues a lot of times with money in the church is the church has been notorious for not getting this right. And we can cast stones at that, and we can you know, watch Kenneth Copeland talk about why he needs a plane in his own personal jet to be able to fly to places because he can't fly coach with all the, the demons that are in there. You should watch that video. And we, we, uh, we also uh, we, we, we read about the preachers with sneakers on Instagram. If you haven't seen that, you need to look at that too. We can mock the, the trendy church culture when it comes to money, or we could just be really good at doing it opposite and actually taking Jesus seriously when he says money is a tool. It is a means to an end, and that end is not just you. It goes beyond you. It is an invitation to see money from a completely different perspective, and that's what we're going to continue to talk about for the next two weeks. Let's pray. Father, our prayers today, uh, no matter what we have uh, and no matter how much time we have, that we would look at our limited time, limited opportunity, and in the same way as this dishonest, shrewd servant, we don't want to be dishonest about what we do, but the shrewdness factor, uh, that's what we want. We want to be strategic in this. I pray that we would use our resources to make memories, to make stories, and not to accumulate stuff. I pray that we would use it to further things that we believe in, that we would shift our resources for things in life that we care about, and that we would see... Uh, Money as a blessing, not a curse, as a, as a blessing, but not just to define and be limited to our identity and ourself, but help us to be incredible, incredible managers of what you've chosen to bless us with, so that when we are faithful with little, we've been given much. But again, not so that we have much. We, not, the goal is not more. The goal is more blessing, more opportunity, more, more options to be able to say, I have limited time and limited opportunity. How do I do this effectively? How do I live out what your son came and talked about when it relates to money? Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.